but care is dictated by others. We saw a lot of this in the opiate epidemic. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the January 29th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are to give a brief overview of the current pressures on clinicians facing COVID, describe how depression relates to burnout, and discuss how we can overcome our vulnerabilities to burnout while facing the COVID epidemic as we did when we faced the HIV epidemic. With us today, we have Glenn Jordan Treisman, Professor of Psychiatry and Medicine and Director of the AIDS Psychiatry Services at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Treisman, thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Uh, today, I want to talk to you a little bit about COVID and the way it's impacted both physicians and how it will be impacting our practice and patients over the next couple of years. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with this epidemic in terms of stopping it. But we do know with cases that we've seen that there are post-COVID conditions that occur in patients and we're gonna to have to be taking care of them. But the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is the way COVID affects physicians and the way it's affecting us. We live in a very funny time in medicine when physicians are pulled in several different directions and we are experiencing an epidemic of physician burnout, which has been made much worse by the presence of COVID. So I wanna talk a little bit about that I mean, this first slide, I have the title Vulnerability to Disease Induced Vulnerability. And over on the left, you can see I have obesity, Western diet, sedentary lifestyle, and genetics. And these things lead to diabetes, adult onset diabetes. But adult onset diabetes can cause kidney disease, heart disease, stroke, blindness, peripheral neuropathy. And those things can cause problems that exacerbate all the things that exacerbated diabetes. So uh, people after stroke are more sedentary, and being more sedentary uh, means they lose their, so their muscle mass and they become more vulnerable to falls and to other things. They get certain frailties. So these cascades of vulnerabilities leading to disease and disease leading to further vulnerabilities are an important part that we're learning about in medicine, and some of which we really learned about from the HIV epidemic. So um, in this next slide, I have sort of a cascade that involves HIV. So you can see in the left corner, I have genetic stress, inflammation, and social isolation leading to depression. But people with depression are at much higher risk for getting HIV. And so depression leads to a cascade of things that increase the risk for infection. But HIV infection increases the risk for a bunch of things that lead to more likely spread of HIV. And so uh, depression leads to high-risk sex and addiction and diminished adherence and loss of social supports and poor coping, impoverishment, probably immune dysfunction and inflammation. Those things make HIV infection more likely to occur and make it worse when it does occur. 
And then HIV infection leads to stress, stigma, addiction, needing to take HIV medications, which have certain toxicities, social isolation, GI dysfunction, dysbiosis, impoverishment, and chronic uh, inflammation. And so those cascades lead to further risk. Each of these events leads to a furthering of medical risk and vulnerability. And we're just learning about these kinds of cascades in the last 20, 25 years, but HIV was a good example of how this occurs. In this next slide, I have COVID, and we know COVID uh, leads to infection, but the infection leads to a variety of things, cytokines, hypoxia, adult respiratory distress, loss of social support, coagulopathy, social isolation, and severe deconditioning. So um, there's these events that are consequences of COVID that are immediate consequences, like people coming into the hospital and having to leave their family behind. We have numerous patients in the hospital in the ICU who can't be visited. And this is a terrible thing for people as they go through this because you can get quite delirious in the ICU with COVID and it furthers the impact. And then there's a bunch of post-infectious consequences of HIV, including depression, headache, brain fog, neuroinflammation, migraines, headaches, executive dysfunction, severe fatigue, anosmia, agusia, and other sensory losses, and ICU-induced PTSD fairly recently described, but an interesting phenomenon that we are seeing lots of as we've become aware of it. And then those things lead to chronic illness and to more vulnerabilities. And we're seeing this in our patients. We're just beginning to describe these consequences of COVID. We don't know, for instance, what percentage of people with COVID get COVID-induced brain fog. It's looking like it's more than we initially thought. We don't know what percentage of patients with COVID have ongoing neuroinflammation but we do know it's exacerbated by hypoxia. So people who have been hypoxic are more likely to get headaches and more likely to get neuroinflammation. Executive dysfunction, we're just starting to investigate how that works and why it works. And then people who are anosmic and agusic, that is lose their sense of smell and taste, are less likely to eat and are more likely to get debilitated. And then I talked a little bit about ICU-induced PTSD, which we've already described before COVID, but which is becoming more obvious as COVID happens to us. So these are things doctors are going to have to take care of, and they're going to be a big risk for us. Now, some of us who've worked in HIV for years also see this as an opportunity to learn how these post-viral events happen and to learn the mechanisms of them. And so we're excited about that, but still they're a big burden for patients and for doctors. And this is a slide from Abraham Vergesia in his book, In My Own Country, um, he said, by taking up the case of AIDS, I had become tainted and tarnished. And all I had to offer, uh, Luther was one of his patients, was the ritual of examination. My heart is heavy. He complained that HIV had burned him out. And um, there was a huge epidemic of physician burnout in HIV clinics back in the 1980s when I started my work. And it was an overwhelming problem for a lot of people. And over time, we learned how to overcome that. Now, it helped a lot that we found all kinds of treatments that were helpful to patients, and we were able to essentially turn HIV into a chronic disease instead of a universally fatal one. But having said that, it was a time of great demoralization among physicians and lots of burnout. And other clinicians, nurses, social workers, and other colleagues, PAs and nurse practitioners in our clinic particularly, had a lot of burnout. And this book um, in my own country, if you have never read it, I urge you to read it, describes how overwhelming this could be for people. However, burnout is a disorder that's spread by vulnerabilities. And the major psychiatric vulnerabilities include 
some psychiatric diseases like depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, behavioral disorders like addictions. Um, and in this COVID epidemic, we are seeing increasing numbers of patients, of patients with alcohol use um, and physicians with alcohol use. Um, problems of endowment, problems of the kind of person somebody is. Physicians are introverted, future-oriented, and get worried when they can't control things. And then problems of life experience, people unprepared for this kind of problem. So those things all lead to burnout. And I want to talk a little bit about physician burnout because I think it's a very important thing. It's generally described, as I show on this slide, as a loss of enthusiasm for your work, a decline in satisfaction and joy, an increase in detachment, emotional exhaustion, and cynicism. And we're all seeing this now in some of our colleagues. They are overwhelmed. It manifests in disproportionately high rates of depression, substance abuse, and suicide. And there are approximately 400 physicians who suicide in the United States. This is a worsening epidemic of physician burnout and physician suicide that's been increasing over the last several years. Suicide is generally caused by untreated mental health conditions, 400 physicians a year. Physicians who committed suicide were less likely to receive mental health treatment. And physicians all know that if they receive mental health treatment, there is a chance that when they fill out their annual renewal of their license or semi-annual renewal of their license, they're going to have to talk about what happened and why. Those things don't ask you if you had cancer in the last year. They don't ask you if you had lung disease in last year. They do ask you if you had a mental disorder in the last year. And um, various states uh, ask various questions, but physicians are always uncomfortable with answering those questions on these kinds of forms. Male physician increased suicide risk is increased 1.4 times the general population. Female suicide risk is 2.2 times the general population. And that's partly because male suicide risk at baseline is higher. And then the risk for major depression in physician residents, which has been studied, is about fourfold higher than an age match control. So why are people getting burnout and why are they getting sick? Um, this is a study looking at physician burnout between 2011 and 2014, and this has only gone up. Other professions are not seeing this huge increase in burnout, and we are seeing it in medical providers. It started before COVID, but COVID has exacerbated it. This is a study of people with burnout syndrome, and almost all of the 90% had an affective disorder, and the average length of time off work was 13 weeks. That's a huge, huge loss in terms of our reserve clinicians who we need at this time to take care of our patients. We think depression is causing at least a substantial amount, if not most, of the burnout. What's causing the depression? So this is a great study. This is a study of anesthesiologists compared to laboratory medicine doctors in terms of stress. And what they looked at in this study was they cut up pictures of these doctors when they were younger, when they were older, and asked blind raters to rate the upper face and the lower face for aging. They had before and after pictures. And then they measured telomere repeats, um, oxidative stress, and superoxide dismutase activity. And these are all things that are associated with aging, with loss of resilience, and with stress. And what they found is the anesthesiologists had more of all of it than the laboratory medicine guys. And this was a pretty profound effect. Um, you can read the paper, but it was, it was quite striking how, much, how serious a problem this is. So we know stress is contributing to depression, and there are lots of models of stress-induced depression. 
And then I wanted to show you one more thing. What induces the stress? And there's lots of ways to induce stress, like a COVID epidemic. But one of the ways you can induce stress is by something called repeated social defeat. And here's two mousies, these two rats demonstrating repeated social defeat. And this is a video clip from nature of what it looks like uh, in these two mice. So there's a big white mouse and a smaller black mouse. Um, and the doctor mouse is being told he has to do all this work and put up with the electronic medical record and to fill out his forms and to do his medical records and to admit more patients and to take more shifts. And what's very interesting is after this happens, there is a huge increase in stress and mice will no longer work to get sugar. They'll no longer go out to explore the elevated maze. They'll no longer swim in the swim test. They get depressed. And these are good models of depression in animals uh, because when you treat them with antidepressants, they get better. And uh, so the consequences of social defeat include a loss of interest in these things and a loss of dopaminergic reward. So you've probably, those of you who know me, know I talk a lot about dopamine rewards and the yeah circuit that's in your brain, that depression essentially turns off that yeah circuit. And uh, these are uh, controls and susceptible animals in terms of D1 receptors. So you can see here, uh, dopamine one receptor. So controls and unsusceptible people don't get it, but susceptible people get a fallout of D1 receptors across the board. And so the yeah circuit in your brain, the dopamine circuit gets turned off by this kind of stress. And it's one of the causes of physician defeat. So social defeat leads to stress, leads to depression, leads to burnout. And we are seeing this in large numbers. Now there are at Johns Hopkins where I work, lots of resources for people getting depressed. The problem is that physicians are uh, reluctant to uh, come for help. They're busy, they're overwhelmed, and there is a stigma. There's a stigma for having a mental illness in all the population, but it's particularly serious amongst professionals and particularly amongst physicians. And physicians are less likely to seek mental health care and less likely to get it. They wanna handle this themselves. I don't have this in this talk, but if you talk about the temperament of people, the personality of people, you can divide people up into introverts and extroverts. Extroverts have an external locus of control and see things as happening to them. Introverts worry about what they've done wrong and try to correct themselves. And they have an internal locus of control and feel like it's always because of themselves that they're having troubles. So they try to fix this themselves. They try to handle the problem internally. And some of these conditions are not handleable internally and lead to depression, burnout, and suicide. And physicians are having lots of this problem. And it's something we can help by decreasing the stigma. Um, I took care of a patient many years ago who was a high school student who had severe depression, had been suicidal. And when she got well, she started a depression awareness campaign at her high school. And her mother came to see me and said, you need to talk to her about this and get her to stop this depression campaign. She's telling everybody about her mental illness. And I said, you'd rather she was stigmatized about it than proud of the fact that she's gotten better and helping other people with it. And you can see the stigma that goes along. If she had been a cancer survivor and started this, it would have been a totally different kind of problem. If she'd been injured in some way and recovered, it'd have been a totally different kind of problem. But because it was a mental illness, 
there was all this stigma associated with it for my patient and for our physician colleagues. So what do I mean by depression? And this is an incredibly important thing because there's two kinds of depression. There's the kind of depression that everybody has when somebody dies, when they have a disappointment, when somebody that they love leaves them, when they have a romantic disappointment. And that depression is normal. It's a psychological consequence of loss. And for today, I'm gonna to call that demoralization, even though that term is falling into disfavor in psychiatry, it's a great term. It's the understandable psychological reaction to loss that everybody experiences. Kubler-Ross's description of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, stages of grief, demoralization follows that as people recover. And the characteristics of demoralization is once it gets going, people are distractible. That is, when they're at the dinner party and you tell them a joke, they laugh. And they maintain some rewards from their usual activities. They usually have initial insomnia rather than terminal insomnia. That is, they have trouble falling asleep. Once they're asleep, they tend to sleep well. There's no family history with demoralization. It's usually a unique episode. That is, something happened, and this is the only time this happened. Most of these people have a stable life course. That is, before they got demoralized, things were going along fairly stably, and they can respond to positive events. They win the lottery, they still get a boost. On the other side of this diagram, I have major depression. Major depression is the thing where the dopamine, the yeah circuit gets turned off. And you can see I have them overlapping because if you demoralize people, you stress them and you can trigger an episode of major depression if you have the right genes. But major depression is a different condition. In major depression, that dopamine system shuts off and you have pervasive loss of rewards from activities. I like the word anhedonia. Now, people when they're depressed, some of them are sad, some of them are flat, some of them are irritable, and some of them are anxious. So people get different responses to not having dopamine. Some people get very anxious, some people get very irritable, some people get flat, and some people get sad. But they all lose the yeah part of brain function. They usually have early morning awakening, wake up early morning, can't go back to sleep and lie there and worry. Usually not always have a family history. If you take a careful history, they frequently had similar milder episodes earlier in life. They often have a disrupted life course where they start out doing really well, and then something goes wrong, and they change directions, and then several years later, they have another thing, and they change directions again. And so their life course often zigzags, and they're usually unresponsive to positive events. As one of my patients said when he won $20,000 in the lottery, yeah, I'll probably just blow the money. And nothing lifted him up. So these different conditions, major depression and demoralization, are useful to identify because major depression responds much better to medication and demoralization doesn't respond very well to medication at all. It responds to encouragement, support, and time. And as I showed you, you can have both. So that's what I mean by uh, major depression. And then what do I mean by social defeat? Because social defeat's an incredibly important thing, but I showed you a mousey beating up another mouse. What are the social defeats that we face? Well, one is a situation in which doctors and other healthcare professionals are responsible for the outcome of care, but care is dictated by others. We saw a lot of this in the opiate epidemic. In the opiate epidemic, doctors were told to prescribe opiates. They were told that pain was a vital sign. They were pushed to prescribe opiates. And when they did things that hurt patients, they were encouraged to continue prescribing opiates, even though they could see that it harmed people. And this demoralized a lot of people. It occurs when your set of values uh, conflicts with the values held by other entities in healthcare. 
So doctors who are pushed to do things like focus on length of stay and finances of the hospital and all kinds of other things, cost of medication, are pushed to think about those things in a way that conflicts with their duty to their patient. Because the essential idea of clinicians is we're supposed to do what's best for our patient and not what's best for everybody else. And there are people who have questioned that, but it is a core ethic of physicians. And so when it's in conflict with the community and in conflict with people you're working with every day, then it becomes an overwhelming sense of social defeat for people. And that is one of the things that's burning us out. So I'm going to talk more about that in my next talk, but uh, I want to conclude with these couple things. Psychiatry is a key part of the medical care of complex patients. Understanding our own vulnerabilities is a key to maintaining our professionalism and avoiding burnout. We need to advocate for our patients and our colleagues. It's part of our professional responsibilities. And since we will be responsible when things go wrong, like the opiate epidemic, we have to demand the authority to do what is right and not be pushed around by rules and bureaucracy in terms of patient care. I want to thank you for inviting me. I look forward to seeing you at my next talk and at our meetings, which I'm hoping will restart as soon as the world gets back to normal. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Treisman, and we're looking forward to part two next week. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Treisman, thank you again. I want to thank you for inviting me. I look forward to seeing you at my next talk and at our meetings, which I'm hoping will restart as soon as the world gets back to normal. Thank you.